0: Over time, and as applications are going to, you know, as we decentralize applications, they become services and they move across different technology languages. Managing the authorization piece is hard, right? So, what Cedar attempts to do is simplify that.
1: Welcome to the Open at Intel podcast, where we're all about open source, from software to security to innovation and beyond. I'm your host, Catherine Druckman, an open source evangelist at Intel bringing you leading-edge, free-ranging conversations from some of the best minds in the open-source community. Let's get into it. While at the All Things Open conference, I had a lot of fun chatting with Ricardo Suarez, an open-source advocate at AWS, about his journey into open-source, Apache Airflow and the Cedar Project, and even his DJ alter ego. We had far too much fun, and I think you will too. Hey, Ricardo, thank you so much. I appreciate you joining me to sit down and, and talk in the middle, in the midst of all of this fun activity that is All Things Open. I greatly appreciate you joining us to impart some wisdom on the well, audience.
0: I, well, thank you very much for having me. It's a real honor to, to be on this and also an honor to, to, to meet you, you know. Yeah, likewise. After all, after all the Floss Weeklies that I've listened to. You yeah, know, apparently
1: you've heard my voice and didn't even know. Exa-
0: exactly. <laughs> no, I mean, how, how cool is that?
1: It's very <laughs> cool. I love meeting people in person. I'm glad that we're back to it. It's, it's yeah, kind of totally, nice. Yeah, totally. Totally. Um, so, yeah. So, first, tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. You, like me, have been around open source a while. You've seen things.
0: <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, I think it's over 20 years now. You know, I can still remember, back in the day, the thing that got me into open source, which was I was working for a, uh, one of the big four uh, management consultancy companies. And I was in charge of building internet infrastructure. And so I was very knee-deep in proprietary software, Solaris, uh, Sun Hardware. And um, I was building some web farms. And um, I I don't know how I came across it, but I came across this thing called HTTPD server, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, On this website called the Apache thing. And it was actually the logo and the name that really caught my imagination. I thought, what is this thing? So I kind of spent probably maybe two or three weeks getting into actually... In those days, you know, there weren't any uh, pre-available binaries. You had to get to sort of compile the source. So um, I got the binaries, sorry, I got the um, source, messed around with it, compiled it, learned how, well, rather learned how to compile it first because I didn't know how to do that. And at the end of it, I, I had this working web server. And in, in, in that era, you know, web servers were proprietary. So you had Netscape, iPlanet mm-hmm. servers, you had Microsoft II servers, and they charged you, right? So right. the thought of being able to use this for free, for me anyway, was quite exciting. And more importantly that, I could actually start customizing things like, web server from Ricardo Suarez, right? <laughs> so right, right? So I did silly things like that, right?
1: The spoke uh, web server. Yeah,
0: and, and and it really caught my imagination so much so that I thought this is really cool. So I started digging deeper and started doing more. And then from there because I was I was building Java web web farms. So that got me into then things like Apache Tomcat and it really kind of started kind of getting my interest in actually the technical side of it. But then what I found, okay, very soon was that there was a resistance, okay, in uh, from the leaders within the organization of using this stuff. And when I kind of dug into it, it was not, there weren't technical objections. These were objections around things like support, uh, legal concerns, you know, I worked in a very conservative company. And so what that, what that did is it actually made me um, start the, what was the now the essence of the OSPO for that company. Ah, okay. Um, so it got me interested in the non-technical side of things, right, so licensing. So I, um, what, I, what I did is I, I started working with the legal department Okay, to educate them on what open source is. And I did that by explaining, this is something that's evolving in technology. Uh, it's relevant to your area of expertise in the business. And it will be useful for you to know a little bit more so you can help your customers. And that was great because what happened is that I, I must have spoken to about 200 lawyers in the company and I found about four or five of them who were very interested in this. And they became my initial kind of like part of my virtual advocacy team for open source. And I would go to them because obviously, Speaking to any lawyers in a company is hard because they bill by the second. So, you know, uh, you know, very kind of early adopter of like pay-as-you-go kind of services. Um, and so I wanted to make sure I had some, some good resources that I could reliably call upon. And from there, I took that model and started um, attacking other, attacking is the wrong word, but, you know, trying to engage other teams. So procurement was the next one. And what I said is that, you know, you're going to have... Software that you you buy is going to have open source, and you know you are going to have this in your contract, and you need to know what it is. So I explained, you know, how well I, I gave the same presentation. It was it was not a technical presentation. I used things like um, analogies of cooking recipes on, on what open source licenses are and things like that, right, right. in a way that they could understand. And I, and I gauge my the level of understanding by the questions they kind of gave me, right. And so so legal first, procurement, then HR. All, always pitching a slightly different angle so procurement was you're going to buy software it's going to have open source how are you dealing with this what's your approach do you need help i can help you um, with hr you know you're struggling to find technical people are you aware of all these amazing um, communities that are springing up to around open source projects maybe you might want to try and see how you can approach those uh, communities and find out if you can you know uh, find candidates that are more uh, suitable candidates for jobs so I started doing that and we started getting some success. Uh, and then and kind of my, and my involvement grew from there. So I was doing technical stuff, but I was also doing the kind of the, the strategy and the, and, the, and the non-technical stuff as well. And, I, and and so I did that whilst I was doing my day job. So that was like a side hustle within the company. And then it grew to being the main job as it got more demanding and it became more strategic for the company. Um, and I was doing that until I left the company. you know. And when I joined AWS, I joined as an evangelist because um, I, I very much, love the, the whole process of learning something and then teaching people um, about that, you know, stuff that I'm really passionate about and open yeah. source I'm super passionate about. So that's kind of like a very, you know, that was like back in the day, that's, that's the last 20 years really of me kind of an open source from where I am today. Now, today I'm an advocate for open source at AWS and I try and um, tell you know people how you can run your, your workloads, open source workloads on AWS and make really AWS the best place for open source workloads. So that's my, that's my goal anyway.
1: Well, it's a, it's a lofty and legitimate and wonderful goal. Well, um, t- tell me a little bit about your alter ego. I believe it is DJ <laughs> ta- oh, Wait, can you, uh, clarify that for me a little bit? Yeah, uh, DJ
0: D- Tasty Taste.
1: Tasty Taste. Thank you. I thought yeah. I was going to get it wrong, but no, that is what I thought it was, DJ Tasty Taste.
0: Yeah, well, this is an interesting one. So back back in the um, early on, I, I've always loved music. And when I was probably in my early 20s, I started DJing, um, mainly kind of hip-hop uh salsa latin jazz quite quite a variety of of styles but you know um stuff that i like but i thought i thought other people would like and um i never gave myself a name and uh my (laughs) my 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 group of friends um found the fact i was doing this very amusing um because they're complete antithesis of that kind of scene so you know in in the pubs uh you know after a few beers um they would they would mock my djing i've got to go i've got to go and dj and um I don't know how the conversation came up, but uh, um, one, one guy, in particular, fat boy, his name is, uh, my best friend, he goes, oh, you need a name. We're going to call you Tasty Taste. And it ca- came out from that because he goes, oh, because uh, he knew about Public Enemy and Flavor Flav. Uh.
1: So from Flavor flavor, <laughs> it became Tasty Taste. <laughs>
0: so that's the kind of story. Uh. And um, I thought, yeah, OK, I'll go with that. And, and I went with, um, with Tasty Taste. Um, and and so when I had flyers printed, I, I suddenly had now tasty taste on my flyers. And, um, and, and that's the kind of the origin story. Now, when I met my wife, um, and settled down, I just stopped doing it completely. Um, I sold my records, dark days. Um, but I sold them because I didn't have the money. So I needed the money. (laughs) I needed the money. (laughs) Um, uh, and, um, and then I think probably about a year or two years ago, I think we were at either um, All Things Open last year or, or, or Open Source I can't remember which event it was. I accidentally let out to David uh, Nally that in a previous life, I had been DJing uh, as DJ Taste to Taste. And unfortunately for me, or fortunately for me, depending on which way, which way you look at it, um, it kind of got out and kind of went a bit viral inside the team. And uh, it led to last a couple of weeks ago at the Open Source uh, Summit in Europe in Bilbao, DJ Tasty Taste making a return after 20 nice. years. Yeah. And <laughs> it was a lot of fun. Fantastic. i got to say, it was so much fun. And I, and I enjoyed it too much. I enjoyed it way too much. And I want to do it more.
1: <laughs> That's fantastic. Uh, see, okay, this goes back to... Um, the one universal truth, and that is that open source people are the best people.
0: Absolutely, we're Absolutely. the most interesting. I
1: mean, it's so we can't help it.
0: <laughs> exactly. Um,
1: I don't know if I could resurrect my alter ego though, because it involves. So who's your who, who's
0: your alter ego then? Um,
1: that would be CyberBully. bully. <laughs> <laughs> um, that was my roller derby name.
0: It's, it's a different ring to it, isn't it? Really? You know? Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's probably it's probably offensive now. I don't know. Yeah, that was my roller derby name. I. I, uh, yeah, I was a little bit more athletic then and hit people,
0: so that's, you know. <laughs> so actually, you know, that's a very interesting thing. So earlier today at the ADOS booth, we were talking to Laurie from, who did the talk about the open source supply chain. And Laurie, oh, Laurie Larissa. And, yeah, Laurie, exactly. Yeah. And, and she was telling us about uh, an accidental uh, thing that she saw on ESPN, uh, which she couldn't believe her eyes. and It was, uh, it was professional pillow fighting. Uh, and she couldn't believe it, but apparently people had the, these specially designed pillows. There was rules, and the winner got five thousand dollars. So, wow. So maybe you know your alter ego could go into you know take it out into into pillow fighting.
1: Yeah, I mean, I bet it's good exercise to be. You know.
0: Yeah, I mean, it looks a lot of fun for me. I mean, I'd yeah. do it. I, I would do it tomorrow.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know? Okay.
0: Well, maybe maybe some pillows. Yeah, yeah, I mean maybe 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 next year at the All Things Open Intel we could have a little ring we can have AWS
1: and Intel across from each other, and then in the middle, a pillow fighting Invite challengers. Oh, this is perfect. <laughs> okay, you, yes. you heard it here first, yeah. folks. <laughs> well, that's thanks that's to promise, Laurie, right? That's thanks but. to
0: Laurie. got to give her credit because yeah, she's, the one, yeah, yeah. she's the one that saw it first.
1: <laughs> oh, that's too funny. Okay, so so let, pivoting back to things like actual open source software. Yes. I wondered if you could educate us a little bit about a couple things that are in your wheelhouse. One of them is Airflow, which might be of interest to both Python folks and non-Python folks. And then also maybe touch on Cedar and you can tell me what that even is.
0: Absolutely, so yeah, so um, today I actually um, did a demo at the AWS booth on Cedar. So for folks who aren't familiar with Cedar, Cedar is an open source project we released last year uh, and it's a domain specific language for authorization. Now what does that mean, right? What does this actually mean? most people are kind of familiar with authentication you know yes. you are who you are uh say you are and you can validate that through you know some idp identity provider uh, so you log into a website and that website now knows who you are right and that's quite well understood there's lots of technologies and, and developers i think are pretty happy working with that but when it comes to then actually knowing how to provide those principles or those users with access to your application resources that, then it gets a bit trickier, right? Because there's no really kind of like good way of doing that. And so depending on which language you are, which framework you're in, um, you have to kind of learn the way to do it. And so it ends up being in a situation where over time, and as applications, you know, you know, as we decentralize applications, they come services and they move across different technology languages, managing the authorization piece is hard, right? So what, um, what Cedar attempts to do is simplify that, and what it does, it, it, it provides a library that, um, uh, and, which is called the the, valid, the, the authorizer uh, or validator. I might get the the, the, the words wrong, but it, it's it's a Rust-based um, uh, tool that takes inputs, and the inputs are information about your application and a policy, right? And the policy is a document that you write that says, has a number of policies, It basically says, has allow and forbid policies, and those allow and forbid policies say, this principle can, ha- can do this action on this resource. So um, the, the beauty of that, okay, is that you can then incorporate that into your application in a very simple way. So you call a function, which is it's authorised, which reads that, that policy file, and then what you've now done is you've separated the business logic of your code to the authorization logic, So it means a couple of things. First of all, now, if you want to make changes to your authorization, you just do it in the policy. You don't have to mess around with your code. And and as you know, right, you change your policies probably more than you do your code. So it means that you don't have to worry about releasing new updates to to, to include a new permission or a new uh, group or something like that, right? It's, 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 It's already in the policy. Secondly, is that actually makes it more readable. You can actually now start to understand within your application who's got access to what. Um, and um, what, I, what I really love about Cedar K okay, is the way it's been built. And it's, I think it's really interesting, the whole, um, so the way it was um, uh, designed, because there were some characteristics we, we needed to make sure. If you're using authorization within your application, it's got to have some characteristics. First of all, in order to, to be useful, it has to be able to separate the, the logic uh, from authorization to um, business, but it has to be readable as well. It has to be something that you can make sense of um, both as an as a author of policies, but also if you want to validate, right? You want And also you want to build tools that can validate for you so that you can start doing things like assumption checking or duplication checking. Uh, and then it's got to be reliable, right? Because if, if, if your authorization engine is down, no one gets access, right? Mm-hmm. So these are kind of what I would say the principal characteristics of what you need for an authorization engine. And so what I really love is how they approach this. They, they used um, a, a language called Daphne. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Daphne. So Daphne is a this um, a project that helps you build formally or, or contains formal verification tools. So you start with a like a, a spec, and you and you write uh, based on that spec what you want your program to do. So in this instance, right, they write they wrote, they wanted to write an authorizer that took policy, a uh, policy elements, and that would then basically you'd be able to guarantee correctness. So it would always be true if you had permissions. It would always be true if you had um, denied, right, and so. Daphne has a bunch of internal mathematical models that help you prove that mathematically. Now, but you can't run that in production because it doesn't really go very fast. So what they did is they they had that as their their baseline. And then they created a a Rust-based implementation. So it's more code, but it's memory safe, it's fast. And what they then did is they, they did this thing called differential testing, which is basically taking a bunch of policies. They tested first against the Daphne, which we know is right, and they then tested the same thing against the Rust version. Now, if the Rust code is good, then both will be okay, okay, right? But if if the Rust version has a different output, then we know we've we've got a bug in the Rust code. And so they they literally run hundreds of thousands of tests, so they get to a point where we've now got an absolutely okay um, implementation in Rust that we can trust. And that and and, and it's called a um, the the actual process for doing that development is called verified. Um, uh, uh, development And it's, we've got a blog post. So in the demo, I, I shared the resource for it. So it's a really interesting project for a number of reasons. First of all, it's a, a really interesting way of how you develop a project, right? So that it's formally, uh, oh, sorry, use a formal uh, verification to guarantee correctness, which I think is super interesting. And yeah, it's all it. open, right? So you can, you, can, you can do this yourself, right? You can right. use this technique yourself. Um, and secondly, it, it tackles a really hard problem. Um, and in the demo I have, I've got a Flask, um, Python Flask application. It's all running on my, le- my, my local laptop, so you can run it locally. But if you want to, you can then migrate to a managed service which we have at Amazon called Amazon Verify Permissions. So, e- depending on what your use case is, you can either do it, you run it yourself, or you can you know, have someone like Amazon uh, run it for you. And we've got some partners like Permit.io who have taken Cedar and they've incorporated it into their. Um, their offerings as well. So it's now, you know, you've got choice, right? Which is great. And that's what I love about open source, right? Is, yeah. you know, it, it always uh, provides yeah. customers with choice. which is great. Bridges. So I know I've been going on a lot there. So no,
1: it's it great.
0: So that's what Cedar is. It's, it's, it's super interesting.
1: That is interesting. There's a word you used, ver- verific- verification, verified. That is a whole other, like we could just talk about what that even means in software yeah. for hours. And so that's yeah. good stuff. Verif- what is verifiable? <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, yeah. But since we don't have hours, maybe, maybe yeah, you can tell us a little bit about your work with Airflow.
0: Yeah, so tomorrow I'm doing a talk on Apache Airflow. So um, I've been working with Apache Airflow for two years now. In fact, I've um, also done a few minor contributions to some of the um, AWS operators on it. Uh, and it's a real—it's a project that has, that has caught my imagination, but also the imagination of lots of other data engineers and and, and developers and, and customers, right? And what it what it is it's a, it's a workflow orchestrator. So it's it's a Python project, and and uh, what you do is you write workflows in Python code using a thing called Apache Airflow operators. And Apache Airflow operators you can think of as like templates for doing things uh, in downstream systems. So if I wanted to upload a file to Amazon S three. Um, I could either learn how to do that in various code, or I can use an Airflow operator that says basically file, destination, and that's it, right? So, so it makes creating these workflows for data engineering, but not just data engineering, for where, wherever you've got tasks okay. that you need to run repeatedly, reliably, um, it's just brilliant, okay? And um, it's got a nice UI. And the way I look at it is that for people who, who run cron, cron jobs, right, or cron tasks, uh, for any kind of workflow, right? Um, but typically, data engineering—you know—in the past, you've kind of you cranked your own system to do that. Maybe you just run. Maybe you still got systems that run cron tabs, but Airflow does it for you, and it does it historically as which means you can go back over time and you can see the status of your workflow, whether it worked, the output, so the actual output of the the run. Mm-hmm. So it's really interesting, right? Now um, it's running. So the thing is, though, all those workflows that are written in Python. But what if you like the idea, but you don't use Python, yeah. right? Um, and, but not just, not, not just that, right? There's also, there are some kind of like um, things and gotchas you need to know when you're, when you're writing your workflows in Apache Airflow. So um, what, an emerging pattern that um, I've been seeing when I speak to developers and speak to customers is the use of um, containers to effectively package up code that you write uh, to do something, uh, so, so, you you're, you know, you've written something and it could be in uh, C++, uh, uh, Ruby, whatever. Um, my, in my example tomorrow, I'm doing Java. Um, you package it up as a container. You upload it to a container registry and then you run it. Now, I could run it manually, but that's not what an uh, orchestrator does, right? Orchestrator orchestrates these things for you. So, so my, my, my talk tomorrow shows you how you can basically use Airflow to orchestrate these kind of container workloads. And first of all, why you'd want to do it. And then actually I've got a demo. I'll, I always do demos when I do my talks because nothing speaks to developers more than actually seeing it Absolutely, you know, yeah, a, you know, yeah, in, and running. You see a demo. So I've got a Kubernetes environment up running. I've got AFO running on my laptop and I'm going to basically package up this Java application that does a SQL query against my local SQL database uh, and then uploads uh, 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 the results to an S3 bucket. Um, and I'm going to run that on a Kubernetes cluster running on, on AWS. Um, but it could be on uh, any Kubernetes cluster anywhere, Right. Uh, And and so what this allows you to do is effectively break free from some of the constraints, whether it's programming language, whether you want to, for example, run your workflows, uh, control them once. So have Airflow as your control plane, and then wherever your Kubernetes cluster is, anywhere in the world, right? Right. You can then basically use it to kind of like schedule and orchestrate the tasks, and then it will run, and then bring the logs back saying it ran, and then you can check. So basically you can have this orchestrator running your, your tasks anywhere, um, on any language, on any system, with one thing. It's, 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 it's wonderful.
1: Versatility is versatility. always a beautiful thing. Yeah, and of course, open it's that's versi- what we're all about here.
0: Yeah, versatility enabled by open source, right? Yeah. Because we can do this because all the operators are open source. We can see how they work. We can tweak them. We can add our own. So, you know, it's a win-win, really.
1: It really is. Um, yeah, so I, I'm hoping these are going to be recorded and I can link to them.
0: Maybe. So I, I, I'm not sure what the situation is, but yeah, I mean, there's certainly the code anyway. I've well, written the code. The code is definitely, I've done it because, uh, I, you know, like I, I'm not one of these people that like to leave things to the last minute. Um, so my code is, um, is already up on GitHub. Okay. Um, so whether you're at the t- here or not, you can still try the code out. Uh, and I always make my code touch wood, touch wood. Uh, so it works. Um, if it doesn't, folks, then pull it, do an issue and I will fix it. Um, but yeah. So, um, but if it's recorded, I'll, I'll definitely share with you a link to the recording afterwards.
1: Okay, and I'll, I'll we'll send out a link to the GitHub too. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. I feel like I could do this all day. What can happens? I? Can I um, pack them in. Is, would
0: it be cheeky if I give a quick plug to something no, I'm please. doing? please. So I do a weekly newsletter, open source newsletter. You do? Uh, I do. Yeah, I've been running. I don't.
1: I subscribe yet. I
0: don't know. Um, but only. Well, you don't subscribe because I don't do email. I'm very sensitive about privacy, so I don't. Collect, I love that. Yeah, so I don't collect people's emails. It's it's a pull only. So if you like it, then you can subscribe to the RSS feed. Yes. Um, but basically, I do a weekly roundup of open source and AWS news. I've been running for about two and a half years now. Um, I just published today episode one six seven five. Uh, so if, you, if it's okay with you, I'll share the link and then yes, you can share please, it with uh, with your with your your listeners.
1: Yes, share, spread the love. Um, thank you so much. I've enjoyed this. Tremendously.
0: Me too. It's Catherine. been
1: really fun. I, I really enjoy it. To be honest, it's my favorite type of podcast is where I don't have to say much and I can <laughs> like wind up the guest and you just go and it's so much fun because I just learn things. Cool. Me too. Yeah, it's really good stuff. So thank well, again, so thank,
0: thanks. for having me. It's been brilliant. Yeah.
1: Thank you. You've been listening to Open at Intel. Be sure to check out more from the Open at Intel podcast at open.intel.com/podcast and at open at Intel on Twitter. We hope you join us again next time to geek out about open source.